hello, and thank you for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church Maryville here in Maryville, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can visit our website to find out more information about our church or to find our full audio archive with all of our messages. So you can find all of that at www.vineyardchurch.us, or you can also subscribe on Apple and Google Podcasts. So now let's hear this week's message. All right, so we are in part two of four, a sermon series called A Gentle Answer. And last week was the introductory message. It's pretty foundational to where we're going in the coming weeks. So I just want to encourage you to go get our podcast if by chance you weren't here last week. It's a really important one. So um, if you're not familiar, you can just Google how to get a podcast. It's this really convenient way that you can listen to audio online. So I encourage you to do that. It's pretty nifty. You can like, if you're in a hurry, you can speed it up. You can listen to me preach at 2x speed, everybody. That's a dream come true. I've actually done it to listen to myself preach at 2x speed. It is obnoxious in a way that I can't, you can't even fathom. So maybe 1.5, maybe 1.5, but if you're in a hurry, you can get the message. So I really hope that you will take the time to do that. So the series, as we said, is called A Gentle Answer. And our uh, sort of anchor text for these weeks is in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. It says this, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And I want to again pause and make sure that we don't just run past these words or think of them as a cute, another cutesy little naive church slogan that's perfect for a bookmark or a coffee cup but doesn't really change things. Guys, this, this is a, a, a simple maxim, a piece of wisdom that I think has never been more needed in our society than it is now, and yet I'm concerned that our capacity to actually do that, to give a gentle answer in an intense moment, is on the decline. It's on the decline because we're in an outreach culture. Or, pardon me, outreach. An outrage. An outrage culture. That's a very different word. Um, an outrage culture. And so I, we can blame the, we can put a lot of blame on a lot of different factors for this. I kind of lay the blame on two things in particular, social media, 24-hour cable news channels, and as we consume this stuff, it is all telling us that we should be absolutely outraged about everything. And as a result, we kind of have no sense of proportion because if everything is outrageous, then effectively nothing is outrageous. The reason why this is happening, there's a number of factors, but one of the biggest is because they, the elusive they, they have figured out how to commodify your anger. Anger is now a commodity. Hate is now an asset, and this is why. We live in an attention economy. If we can get your focus, if we can get your attention, then that can be turned into an asset, into a commodity. It is really valuable in an attention economy. And anger, outrage, hate, it makes us super hyper-focused, and that makes our attention really dialed in, which makes our anger really valuable. So just think about this. Your anger is the product and people are going to great lengths to produce that product in you in bulk. And as we said last week, if we're going to be outraged, maybe we should be outraged about that. And again, the irony is not lost on me that I'm trying to make you feel outraged about the fact that people are trying to make you feel outraged. I, I see it. I feel like I need to acknowledge it this week as well. It is there. But I still contend that maybe if we're going to be outraged, maybe that's actually a good place for us to place our ire. Um, the trouble is, and this is, anger is anger's launched from our limbic systems, uh, and we can't really even control what triggers our anger. And what that means is, 
you can't actually consume all of this propaganda, all of this media, and then not be affected by it. And as a result, we live in an increasingly furious world. And that anger, we said this last week as well, it floods us with a couple of really powerful chemicals, adrenaline. Adrenaline, you may remember, adrenaline makes us dumb, right? Because it moves resources away from our brains and into our muscles so that we can fight or run away. Adrenaline makes us stupid, it makes us impulsive, and then later it makes us deeply exhausted. And it also floods our bodies with dopamine. Dopamine, even though anger is a bad feeling, we get dopamine with it. And dopamine, it controls our pleasure centers in our brains. It makes us feel good, even as we feel bad. And that is profoundly addictive. And the results are, we are as a society, irrational, exhausted, impulsive, and addicted like never before because we're angry like never before. The Washington Post called this a nation full of controversy junkies just kind of feeding off of the next high, all of it built around outrage. And if we're going to break that cycle of outrage and break that cycle of addiction, we have to step out of that stew, sort of the constant barrage of negativity, and step into the way of Jesus, which is profoundly different. And here's our key text from last week, Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise, and then what a promise, the God of peace will be with you. And in this outrage of culture, this is happening less and less, and we as the people of God need to be moving toward this more and more, because it's pretty simple, garbage in, garbage out. If you set your focus on things that are negative, you will be negative. If you set your focus on things that are positive, you will increasingly walk in that. And I want to just add this, if the most valuable asset in our economy is your attention, then you should have some agency over where that attention is placed. Don't you think? Don't you, we're not Southern anymore. We're not going to nod our heads. Don't you think? All right. So that was all last week. Obviously, I don't trust you to get the podcast. <laughs> okay. So today, today we're going to look at the words of Jesus. And we're going to look at a tiny excerpt from the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest message ever delivered. And the reason why it's so wonderful is because... It's Jesus just revealing his heart for his values that he has for us and how we live our lives in this world. So two quick verses, but they're quick, but they're, they're heavy. Matthew 5, 21, 22. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. I think we're all in agreement here. Don't murder people. If so, you should get punished for that. Seems clear enough. Verse 22, it starts getting fuzzy. But I say... If you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. Did you see where he just put anger and murder in the same category? That's, that's quite a statement. Then he adds, if you call someone an idiot, which fortunately none of us have ever done, so that's a relief. But if you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. There needs to be accountability for that. And if you curse someone, whoo, here we go, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Ooh. So... Let's unpack this just a little bit. There's a lot there. It's kind of heavy. First of all, I want to say Jesus is not saying it's a sin to be angry. And I say that knowing that as you read it, it's sure for the world sounds like Jesus is saying it's a sin to be angry. I will clarify why that's not the case. He's not saying that. He's not saying if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be sugary sweet and cuddle with everybody and nice and Ned Flanders level naive at all times. That's not what he's saying. Paul said, be angry and sin not. Anger is not a sin. Anger is an emotion. 
We can't ultimately control our emotions. Remember limbic system. We can only influence our emotions. So why is Jesus saying that anger leads to judgment? Here's why. There are two words in the Greek New Testament that are used for anger. One of them is thumos. Thumos is like this quick, like flare-up kind of anger. You know, it just comes on fast and hot and then it, it dissipates quickly. So this is when somebody pulls out in front of you in traffic. You know, you have to slam on your brakes. Or when somebody pulls out in front of you about a quarter mile ahead and taps their brake and your wife screams, get on the brakes, because you're certain that you're just going to run them over. So my wife's a little jumpy. That's a little bit personal. But that quick flare-up kind of anger where you get a rush of emotion. You know, somebody says something bad about the UT Vols. Or what's even worse is this is the one I really hate. When somebody says something bad about the UT Vols and I agree, I'm like, dang it, they're right. That's the worst. That's the worst feeling. Thumos, it comes and it goes. There's another word, though, in the Greek New Testament, and it is much more fun to say as well, orgasthestai. <laughs> and orgasthestai is the lingering kind of anger. You know, it's, it's the stuff that sits with you, it follows you around, it leaves you ruminating throughout the day. It just percolates and it, as it gets hotter and hotter. And you're thinking about what you might say or what you might do or how they're going to get what's coming to them. This is how you begin nursing a grudge. Orgasthestai is the word that Jesus uses here. That's what he says is the sin. And the reason why he says it's a, ten, a sin is because he loves you and he doesn't want you to do things that are bad for you. And orgasthestai, that type of anger, is absolutely toxic. Jesus is not saying never be angry. That's naive and impossible in a broken world. But he is saying, and don't miss it, if you give some of your heart over to that lingering, festering, brooding kind of anger, you're subject to judgment. And here in a couple minutes, we'll talk about what that, what that means. In the next sentence, he says, don't call people an idiot. If so, you're subject to the court. Uh, this was in a shame and honor culture, and so uh, the slander was taken more seriously in that society than it is in ours. And, and basically, he's saying, you just can't run around criticizing people. People need to be held accountable to that. People need to be held to a higher standard than that. Uh, the word here, raka, is the Greek word. It, just, it means empty or empty-headed. It's just saying, it's dismissive. It's, you're, you know, you're, you're a fool. You're a moron. You're dumb. And it's just hurtful. And Jesus goes, you know, people need to be held accountable for that stuff. And then the next thing he says is if you curse someone. And this isn't like, you know, some weird voodoo witch doctor nonsense where you're putting a hex on somebody. That's not what he's talking about. There's a dual meaning to this word. There's really two parts to it. Um, it means when you shame a person's behavior. And here's the other part of that. You also shame the person's character the person themselves, their, their sort of core identity. So this is more than, hey, that was dumb. This is you are dumb. This is just debasing another person. This is dismissing them. This is, this is canceling in the first century, even if it's only in your heart. And for that, Jesus says, you're in danger of the fires of hell. This whole thing, we just throw somebody into a category and you dismiss them outright because they don't fit in the category you think that they should be in. If you do that, you're in danger of the fires of, whew, of hell. Hey, let's talk about hell for a minute, everybody's favorite subject. There's a lot that could be said on this subject. Let me just say a couple of things. We'll just do it real quick. This is not a whole teaching on that subject. 
don't worry. Uh, but just a, just a quick little thing. First of all, let me just say, whether you're a church kid or not, there's a pretty good chance that what you picture and what you think of when you picture and think of hell is in no way represented in Scripture. All right, so I'll just give you that as a, as a sidebar. And then also there are three words in the New Testament for hell. They are Hades, Tartaru, and Gehenna. Jesus primarily uses the word Gehenna, and here he uses the word Gehenna. Let me tell you what he's talking about here. Gehenna in ancient Israel, was an actual place, okay? It was an actual place, and everybody in Jesus's audience knew about that place, knew what it was, knew what it was like. It was called the Valley of Hinnon, but that was just slick marketing to make it sound less gross than what it was. Um, it was on the south side of Jerusalem, and here's the backstory for that little plot of land. In the absolute worst time in the history of the nation of Israel, when they were as a nation at their very lowest, and they were far from God, neglecting him in every way, turning to false gods and idols, they had this belief in uh, the god of fire, Molech, and they believed that that god required the sacrifice of children and infants. And unfortunately, it's hard to even say, but unfortunately, that happened a lot. And after these children and infants were sacrificed, there was a mass burial ground. That was Gehenna. That was the Valley of Hanan. And the thing about that, when you've got some history like that on a plot of land, it has a way of following you. Can you imagine talking to your real estate agent and... <laughs> Wondering why the property values are so low in the Valley of Hanan, and then you find out why, and it's like, no, I'm out. <laughs> There's no way. I don't even believe in ghosts. I'm not coming. There's no way. I'm not going near that place. Um, and so nobody wanted to be there, ever. And so what happened is it became a dump, all right? So people would just dump their trash there. And this is 2,000 years ago. We've gotten much more sophisticated when it comes to sanitation. What that basically meant was there was a fire there, or people would throw their trash in the fire. So when you read things about the fire that never goes out, it's usually the word Gehenna. And what it's referring to is a dump where there was a fire that never went out. And so when Jesus says Gehenna, he's not talking about exclusively a future or an afterlife reality. He's talking about a present reality. And what he's talking about is a deeply haunted trash fire. So here's the warning. And we all need to stop and heed the warning and let it land. If you give over any part of your heart to this brooding disposition of contempt, where you're sour and embittered, and you make people small. You tear people down, whoever they are, because the, cat the category or the label you've placed on them, you know, all those stupid liberals, or all those stupid conservatives, or those, those ignorant anti-vaxxers, or those ignorant vaxxers, or those urban elitists, I just think they're better than everybody with their, with their granola lifestyle, walking everywhere they go, what do they know? Or those suburban snobs with their white flight and their oversized houses. Or those rural idiots, uneducated and ignorant. Or those rich fools or those poor fools. Guys, I could make the list all day long. These labels that we place on people, these categories that we shove them into. Jesus says, give over any part of your heart to that kind of contempt and your heart 
your soul gets dumped into something like a deeply haunted trash fire. And he's not talking about a future reality. He's talking about a present reality, a hell of your own making. Guys, I know a lot of these people, I'm betting you too, do too, these brooding types. They're contemptuous and they're angry and they're frustrated. And I think I know a lot of them. I think I know just about like, I think I know people on all sides of just about all of the issues. And they think they're so different, but they've all got one really big thing in common. You know what it is? They're miserable. They're just miserable. I just feel such, I feel pity for them. You know why? Because the words of Jesus have come true and their souls are in a deeply haunted trash fire as they doom scroll their timelines and hate watch the news. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, give any of your heart over to that and you will be in Gehenna. You will be in a living hell of your own making. Guys, I have seen the gates of hell. And it is in the hearts of people who have given themselves over to anger. Now, um, anger has a way of progressing from going from one step to the next. So I have a very not scientific sort of progression that we're going to look at in seven stages because you can't be a Christian and stop at six. You got to go to seven. So I've got seven stages. Uh, what happens, they're all pretty obvious, but I want to go through them with you. Number one, uh, we get angry. That's obvious. Oh, we get angry just because our will gets thwarted. That's what it means. You desire something and it doesn't happen. Um, and scripture says this really clearly, James four, verse two, you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. Isn't that simple? I love it when even I can understand the scriptures. You don't get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. Number one, we get angry. And number two, um, our egos get wounded. Our egos are wounded. Um, what happens is whatever the bad thing is that happened, we take it as an insult onto our very person. And we think, oh, we, take it, we jump to take it personally, and we think, how could they do this to me? And if you think about it, that is, a, that is a really loaded statement. How could they do this to me? I read a psychologist a couple of weeks ago, and she was really sharp. And her perspective, I don't know if it's right, but it made a lot of sense. She said that really all of our anger at the root of it is about self-preservation. We want what makes us feel safe right? And so high status makes us feel, pra feel safe. The praise of other people makes us feel safe. A sense of being right, because if you're wrong, that means you're threatened in some way. So if you feel right about things, then you feel secure about things. And she says, anything that threatens any of that makes us feel angry, all right? And we don't even have a choice. Remember, limbic system. And with that comes adrenaline, and with that uh, exhaustion and impulsivity and then dopamine and from that addiction as we are increasingly addicted to our anger. And with our wounded ego, egos, we take personal offense. We get defensive, which is number three. Number three is we play the self-righteous victim. Should take a second to let that settle in and give you just a second to open your heart to the possibility that you might have done this at some point play the self-righteous victim. We've got, this, we've got this down to an art form in our culture. Uh, Patrick Lencioni, he's, he's not a Christian writer, he's a business writer, but he, he calls this the fundamental attribution error. And what that basically means is if I let you down, then I give myself the benefit of the doubt. But if you let me down, then I probably won't. I'll blame it on external factors 
when I do it, but when you do it, I'll blame it on internal factors. So for example, if I'm late for the meeting, then by default, I assume that I showed up late for the meeting because traffic's terrible or my alarm clock's broken or my children are a holy terror or whatever. I make excuses for external factors. But if you're late for the meeting, then I'm going to assume you don't care about me, you don't value my time, you don't care about what the meeting was about. Internal factor, factors. External for me, internal for you, which basically means we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We typically don't give other people the benefit of the doubt, forgetting that we're just like all the others, and the result is we play the self-righteous victim card. Number four is we, this is where it gets ugly, we give our hearts over to contempt. Um, this is really the us versus them mentality. We've talked about this a lot over the last year or so. Polarization is just through the roof in our society. Now, let me explain something that I just think is really, really important. I think this is why polarization is uh, so dramatically exacerbated right now. Um, things like social media, the shrinking of the world, so many people having a voice. And because we said last week about how the algorithms tend to um, emphasize negative news um, and de-emphasize positive words and news, uh, because of that, we are more aware of the contempt and anger in the world than we have been in the past. And when you are aware of contempt and you are aware of anger, some of your natural things are going to set in, which is like, hey, I don't feel safe because there's a lot of anger in the air. And if I don't feel safe, then you're going to do what humans have done throughout human history, which is you're going to look for your tribe because you don't want to be alone when the bullets start flying. You don't want to be alone. So I need a tribe and I need it now. And on social media, where they are emphasizing the most negative and the most inflammatory groups, what happens is we find those most extreme groups increasingly more like readily accessible to us. And they have this other benefit, which is in an extreme group, the categories are very, very clear. And when you're fearful, when the world doesn't feel safe and your survival to some extent, whether you do this consciously or not, relies upon being in a tribe that is well-defined where you know who's in and who's out. You don't want gray, you want black and you want white. And as a result, these extreme groups get more and more influence, more and more voices, and as a result, people become more and more polarized. And this is what we experience online, even though if you look at virtually any subject I've ever seen, people, there's a bell curve to it. The great majority of people are centrists, not extremists, but that's not the picture that we get as we go online. And as a result, those clear boundaries push people into extreme uh, choices or extreme responses to what's happening, and that just eradicates the possibility for nuance, reasonableness, kind or thoughtful discussion. There's a book by this name which highlights this well. It's called The Big Sort. We've, we've been sorted into these black and white categories that don't even reflect reality, but they make us feel safe because we feel threatened in the world. That's number four. Number five, it's a tiny step to this one, which is, I'm just going to call it verbal violence. Uh, this is a lot of things. This is, I've got all this animosity building up, so I'm going to go tweet something awful, you know. Or I'm going to buy one of those F Biden flags and just let it, let it wave on the back of my truck. I'm going to start rehearsing in my mind in the shower, like the next takedown against those people. All right? All of which is just completely removed from the way of Jesus. 
was praying about this this morning. I, I thought of an illustration to share with you, and so I added it at the last minute. I often regret last-minute added illustrations. This one is disgusting. If it is a mistake, tell me afterwards, and I won't do it in the next service. Deal? Deal. Okay. Don't be that Southern nice. Come and tell me. Like, no, Aaron, don't. Um, but it reminded me of a story I read a number of years ago, sort of a rare occurrence, a 50-ton, as in a 100,000-pound sperm whale, died at sea, which of course is sad, but before it decomposed, or was, you, know, you know what happens to stuff when it dies under sea, before all that happened, uh, it was washed up onto the beach. And so here was a fully intact 100,000-pound sperm whale. Now that's a sad thing because it died, but from the scientific community, they're going, this is an opportunity for research that you almost never get. So they thought, we've got to get this 50-ton whale into a very large laboratory really quickly before it decomposes and rots away so that we can learn some stuff. Well, here's what happens inside of a whale when it is beached in the hot sun and it starts to decompose. The decomposition process, I don't know if I said that right, uh, releases methane gas, which is like, which is like your gas, okay? It's like a it's a fart, okay? So it releases a fart, but it stays inside of this whale. And as it decomposes in the hot sun, this whale starts to... And it becomes a race against time. Can we get this whale into a massive laboratory that can contain it so it can be researched and we can learn something from it before it literally explodes? And so... It took a few days to figure out the logistics of that, and now this massive, ever-expanding whale is on the back of an enormous flat... This, this illustration may have been a bad idea. On an enormous flat truck, and they're taking it through, of course, a really populated part of a downtown city, and it erupts. And rotting whale blubber goes hundreds of yards in every direction while releasing, I think, possibly the biggest fart the world has ever known. <laughs> I think that happened. This was a mistake. You don't have to tell me afterwards, I know. I'm going to say it again, though. I know I will. Anyway, I just, I, that image has always followed me around, you know, because I think a lot of people live their lives with a massive whale in tow, just hoping it doesn't explode. And increasingly, I just think in our society and in individuals, it's just growing. And if you read the news, like what you're going to find, headline after headline, this weekend was full of them again, what you're going to find is eruption after eruption after, and a big, big mess, like lives lost. Which leads us into number six, which is hell on earth. Gehenna. A bunch of people living in a deeply haunted trash fire, brooding, hate watching, doom scrolling, spitting venom. This is where we get those, those negative conversions that I was talking about last week. You know, like I can't even visit my parents anymore because they're just so angry all the time and they didn't used to be like that. Or I have friends who won't even talk to me because they think I voted for the wrong person. Or I knew these people that used to be so gentle and kind and now they don't have any of the fruit of the spirit anymore. They're just angry all the time. What do I do? And it's, it's hell on earth. And then seven is a catch-all for just, I don't know, all the worst things. Abuse, violence, murder, war. 
It sounds ridiculous, honestly, upon first reading when Jesus says that anger is like murder. But Jesus says anger is like murder because it leads to murder. And if we can cut it off at the source, the world is better and we're better and it redeems our souls. I'm about done here, but let me uh, read you a couple more verses. These are the next two verses in Jesus' sermon. He says this, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, then and only then come and offer your sacrifice to God. The way of Jesus goes like this. Uh, The first sign of animosity, go and deal with it. Don't harbor it. It's toxic. Don't let the anger take residence. Don't let it grow into contempt, especially against people you know and love, people you're close to. Don't let it push you to an extreme. Go and deal with it. And what's real, we got to see really the strength of what Jesus is saying here. He says, if you're doing like the most religious thing that you can think of, stop what you're doing. This is the son of God saying this. Stop the religious thing. Stop bringing a sacrifice and go and deal with the mess that you've got on your hands. What's interesting, I read something this week that said um, when Jesus was delivering this sermon, he was about 80 miles away from where people went to make said sacrifices. So, and people would go there on foot. So 80 miles on foot with like a goat in tow or whatever it's going to be, that's like a week-long trip. And Jesus says, when you get all the way there and you're finally to the front of the line to make your sacrifice in that weird old broken system that we don't have anymore, thank God. But here we are, I'm finally going to make this sacrifice so I could be right with God. And you remember, oh no, I got a thing with my neighbor. Then he says, like, leave Billy the goat there and book it 80 miles back home on foot. Make it right with your neighbor. Book it 80 miles back to the temple and then make your sacrifice. And the meaning for this is really clear. Because don't, don't, don't miss this. Don't even try to make things right with God until you have done the work to try to make things right with others. And here's this really unsettling truth that you might want to dismiss this, but I'm telling you, you can't. you got to hold it. Your relationship with God is tied up with other people, period. It just is. I think that's made apparent in this text. He said, don't even come to me. We've got a lot of people who pray and they feel like the prayers hit their ceiling and they can't really connect with God and they wonder why. And maybe they haven't considered the fact that they've got contempt in their heart for a person or a category of people. Your relationship with God is tied up with other people, period. This reminds me of what Peter said, 2 Peter chapter 3. He talks about, he talks to husbands and he said, be careful how you treat your wives or it will hinder your prayers. He's like, if you're not going to be kind to your spouse, don't even talk to me. That's what Jesus says. Don't even talk to me. Why? Because your relationship with God is tied up with other people, period. Harboring anger and contempt will cut you off from God. That should get your attention. All right, David, why don't you come on up, man? Theoretically, I'm going to stop soon. Um, I just want to acknowledge this. Um, What I'm saying today is, I think, really easy to understand. Uh, It's like, yeah, I get it. It's bad. It's toxic poisons you. It's not good. It's easy to understand. That doesn't mean it's easy to do. It's just because something simple doesn't make it easy. And there's this other factor, and I want you to stay with me on this, because I think we need to recognize that this is part of what's happening in our society at large. Um, Our culture basically says this, oh, you're angry? Good. Good. 
use that. That's what we need. That's the answer. This is what our culture is saying to us largely. We need widespread anger in groups. And the more we have that, the more change we can bring. So man, fire up a tweet storm. Yeah. Say something awful on Facebook. Go cancel somebody. Signal your rage. Clarify your boundaries. Retaliate. Retaliate. Use the anger. Use that anger to bring hell on earth. And the lie goes like this. That's how you're going to enact real change in a broken world that needs real change. The thing is, man, if you're even the least bit inclined to listen to Jesus at all, you can't draw that conclusion. Jesus gave very different advice. Let me read you three more words or three more verses. Same sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, same chapter, 43 to 45. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. When's the last time you did that? You prayed for those who were persecuting you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Uh, we're going to have Selah as we do every week. Selah is a word we find over and over in the book of Psalms. It means a sacred pause. And in Selah, we take a moment to try to make the message as personal as we can, to apply it into our own lives. And I'll get us started in that prayer, and then you'll have time and space to pray and think on your own for a minute or two. Um, but first, maybe give you a little bit of uh, direction for where your mind might need to go with this time of reflection. Maybe you could ask yourself if there is some lingering contempt, especially with somebody you know, your neighbor, somebody you love, maybe someone even in your own household. You're just up to here, man. You're just frustrated. And if you're honest, you're so quick to anger with them. You're just, you're so quick to anger. It's like this person gets grace, this person gets, this person gets no grace because of uh, up to here. If so, it feels like one of those like leave your sacrifice at the altar moments and go and make it right. Because I think that can hinder your relationship with God. And similarly, let's go back to that horrifying illustration about exploding whales and maybe ask yourself, do I have, even if it's a slow build, do I have a, a building tension that just might erupt? And this might be something that just happens overnight. You know, a week ago you were fine, but now you're not. But more likely it's something that happens over the course of years. If you look back, okay, six years ago, six years ago, did I have less contempt than I do now? Am I less at peace than I was then? Am I more quick to anger than I was then? If so, you might have a, 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 an exploding whale in tow. And who look out. And I think we recognize that the whole, the whole exploding whale thing, that can, um, that can happen in a number of ways. And I think by default, we think of rage and fury and violence, and it absolutely can happen in that way. You go, you go full Popeye, right? I've had all this I can stands and I can't stands no more and you pound a can of spinach and your muscles form disproportionately into your forearms. I don't know what that's about. And then off you go with violence. But it doesn't always explode like that. Sometimes it explodes in tears, exhaustion, anxiety, panic attacks, isolation, deep depression, hopelessness. It's not just 
violence. So maybe we could take some time to consider if we might be dealing with that as well. Do we have something we need to leave at the altar? Do we have a whale in tow? Let me take a moment to pray and then I'll finally be still and let you guys pray on your own. Jesus, um, we just trust your teaching. We trust your teaching. And we all know murder's bad, but you said anger's like murder. Do you open up some space in our hearts to believe that? To see the simple truth that you don't get murder without anger? And that if we have made space in our own hearts to harbor our frustrations, then we have to one degree or another become increasingly murderous. It's not fun to see, but we need to see it if that's looming inside of us. Help us to see it, Lord. Help us to take the truth from last week that we can shift our focus from those things that are negative to those things that are positive. Be transformed by the way of Jesus. Lord, meet us in the stillness. Take a moment to pray on your own.